Thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Now, whenever I publish a paper or an article on the blog, I always get feedback that I should put out an audio version at the same time. So that's what I'm going to start doing. You asked, I listened. I'm going to start working through the back catalog of articles and papers to produce some more content for you all. And as I produce more, I'll try to get all new content out in both formats going forward. As always, if you appreciate the Freed Thinker podcast and would like to help the ministry financially, please consider becoming a patron by following the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding us on Patreon. You can also head on over to iTunes and give us a review. The more reviews we get, the better our positioning in search results and the uh, broader of an audience we reach. Also, with May fast approaching, the Mentionables Conference is right around the corner. If you're in the North Carolina area or would travel there in May and you'd like to come see me debate atheist Benjamin Watkins from Real Atheology on God and the Problem of Suffering, or listen to some great talks by some up-and-coming Christian thinkers, then head on over to thementionables.org for more information and to get your tickets. Well, with that, let's jump into the show dealing with a rather bizarre passage from the Old Testament on a trial by ordeal. Enjoy the show. Trial by ordeal was not an uncommon thing in the ancient Near Eastern literature. This common literary motif was ubiquitous not only in myth and fiction, in which the hero would undergo some death-defying examination in order to be deemed worthy, but it also was found in legal codes, where people suspected of some odious act were tested to reveal their guilt or innocence. It should not be surprising, then, in one sense, for us to find such texts within the pages of the Bible. For this episode, I will explore the law regarding the trial by ordeal of the wife suspected of adultery in Numbers 5, 11 to 31. The scope of this, uh, of this episode does not allow me to cover issues regarding the relationship of the Bible to other ancient texts, other than a simple notation of similarities and discontinuities. Whether these similarities ought to be regarded as plagiarism or polemics or something else entirely will be left to other more capable minds at a different time. In this episode, I will examine the composition and placement of the text as it is found in the book of Numbers, the historical context of the law, provide an expository treatment of some of the features of the law, why this text is still important to the modern Christian church, and finally present an analysis of the Christological fulfillment of the law. So first, the placement in the text. 
Commentators have long speculated about not only the placement of the passage within the book of Numbers, but also how the text came to arrive in its present form. Here, we'll see not only the coherence of the text within the flow of Numbers, but also that this text reveals a unified tradition that is ancient and authentic rather than a post-exilic contrivance. Firstly, we must address the question of why this text is placed where it is in the flow of Numbers. Wenham states in his commentary, quote, As often in Numbers, it is not immediately apparent what this law has to do with the context. It seems out of place in a section concerned with purifying the camp and the people, end quote. However, as Wenham goes on to explain, and other commentators have been in agreement, the placement of the passage where it is in Numbers 5 is discernible upon careful scrutiny. Numbers 5 presents a set of laws regarding the cleanliness of the camp and the Israelites within the camp, and the suspicion of adultery as well as the jealousy that such suspicion can arouse are detrimental to not only the family, but the nation as a whole. Quote, When a husband, instead of loving and protecting his wife, proceeds to defame her, he introduces instability not only into his own domestic life, but also into the whole nation, end quote, writes Kaiser in his commentary. The overall movement of the chapter can be seen in its progression from more open and obvious forms of uncleanliness to more personal and hidden forms. Thus, we have the progression from laws regarding visible physical marks in verses 1 through 4 to visible but non-physical marks of marred public relationships in verses 5 through 10 to finally the most intimate and private of relationships, the marital bed in verses 11 to 31. Infidelity was not considered a personal or private matter as it is often viewed today in the West, but something that could bring uncleanliness into the congregation as mentioned above. This is due in large measure to the fact that adultery was not viewed as merely a breach in contract between the husband and the wife, but also a breach of faith between the congregation and God. This is why protocol was needed in Numbers 5 for not only restitution, but also decontamination. It is in this context of ceremonial purity that we will best understand the law as it is presented to us. Second are the issues regarding the composition of the text itself. Here, the old cliché that an ounce of fact is worth a pound of presumption seems to ring true. The majority of critical scholars apparently agree that this passage belongs to some supplementary stratum but draws on ancient traditions. This is Bud's view in his commentary. This is for several reasons. Bud argues that not only is the grain offering of Leviticus 2 secondary to the ritual and presupposed by the author, but he also claims that it has little to no connection with the law immediately surrounding it. B. Stade argues that the law is too disjointed to have been composed originally as a single unit. He noted for his evidence the repetition of the woman being brought before Yahweh in verses 16 and again in 18, the duplication of the oath in verses 19 and 21, and that she apparently twice drinks the water in verses 24 and then 26 to 27. Moreover, he argued that verse 20 is incomplete in that it does not finish the consequences of falling under the curse, but leaves it unstated and that verse 22 seems to explicitly reiterate verse 21. 
Other text critical theories, such as those of Holzinger, Press, Rettendorf, and others, all try to resolve these apparent conflicts within the text by appealing to a redacted text, which fused together multiple sources. Here, I don't really have the space to treat each one individually, but the problems with source critical theories have been long argued by conservative scholars, and they seem sufficient enough to stifle such analysis of the text. Martin Note argues in a different direction by trying to get back to the earliest literary tradition. In order to do this, he supposes a synthesis of three different kinds of narratives regarding divine judgment. For Note, the importance is not necessarily how the text came to be, but rather that the text is ancient, likely representing P material due to its reference to the tabernacle in verse 17 and its allusions to the priestly rituals regarding offerings in Leviticus 1 through 4. Note himself admits, however, that the three kinds of divine judgments he sees behind the text have become so amalgamated that they are no longer uh, that they are no longer be separated as literary units, something which seems rather convenient to his theory, I must say. <clears throat> On this point, R.K. Harrison is particularly helpful. Rather than trying to resolve the textual irregularities by appealing to unknown, and in the case of note, unknowable sources, Harrison points us to the fact that the text is really not all that irregular by the standards of ancient Semitic writing. He notes that without an understanding of this literary style, it may appear that the woman is made to stand before Yahweh twice, drink the water twice or three times, or swore the oath twice, and that the ritual may seem to be three distinct rituals merged into one ceremony, namely the grain offering, the drink offering, uh, offering and the swearing of an oath. He adds that the presumption of modern critical scholarship is not without its historical precedent. The Mishnah in the treatise Tractate Sota furnished copious amounts of conjectural accretions such as the woman being able to opt out of the ritual at certain parts, the manner in which the curse was composed on the leather scroll, and various outcomes of the curse on the woman. Here, Harrison includes the source-critical theories in the same family of presumption by positing multiple fractured and hypothetical, though interesting, sources. He seems to find the thesis of Fishbane, Milgram, and Freimer Kinsky to be stimulating, but ultimately fruitless. Harrison himself adopts the view that the text is best explained by appeal to a common Semitic literary device known as repetitive summary, whereby the author uses repetition at different points in a narrative to help, quote, identify and separate materials that are descriptive or prescriptive, end quote. For Harrison, the material is intentionally repetitive, and to illustrate this, he uses the problem of the multiple instances of the woman drinking the soiled water. Rather than verses 24, 26, and 27 describing three drinks from the bowl, verse 24 shows that the priest is the agent God uses to administer the test when the water is given, while verse 26 restates the same event to show that the priest is the one who facilitates the offering and thus is permitted to dispense the water to the woman, and verse 27 reiterates the drinking event to show what may happen to the woman who drinks from the soiled water handed to her by the priest. 
For Harrison, the repetition is intentional and complex and is indicative not only that the priests would have viewed the ceremony as important, but also that the ceremony has marks of being primitive because it has not been smoothed out. If the text had been redacted from multiple sources, we should expect the redactor to do a better job smoothing over such rough edges at the seams. Wenham takes a similar approach, but rather than seeing a tripartite form, he sees a bifurcation of the law into two parts. Elsewhere in his commentary, he deals with the two-part division of the law immediately preceding our text in verses 5 through 10, and the law directly after it in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And so he sees this law in verse 11 through 31 as conforming to that same bifurcation pattern. For Wynnum, the division falls along the two possible outcomes. The woman is guilty, but the husband has no proof of it, verses 12 through 14a, 27 and 29, or the woman is in fact innocent and her husband's suspicions against her are unjustified, verses 14b, 28 and 30. And what fills the middle is the procedure, which would be the same in either case, verses 15 to 26. He summarizes his position by stating, This section makes a good sense as it stands. It is necessary to postulate the presence of two sources here. Sorry, it is unnecessary to postulate the presence of two sources here. Elsewhere, it is typical Hebrew style, which may anticipate or resume a point out of strict chronological sequence. End quote. One more question can be added to this discussion. One may wonder, even if the text is to be read as demanding that the woman stand before God two times, drink two times or three times, and swear the oath twice, why should this lead to the position that the text itself is undergirded by either multiple texts, an unknowable amalgamation of divine judgment views, or even a complex literary structure used to highlight the role of the priests? Should we suppose that any time we have a complex ritual where an action is repeated, that it is less a later redaction of multiple sources? Some commentators have noted the similarities between this trial by ordeal and the modern lie detector tests. Why should we not think that the ancient, like the modern lie detector, should not require an action be performed multiple times, or a statement repeated for the gravity of it, or to insist that the pressure of the situation be felt by the participants with greater force each time they repeated part of it? Why should the woman not be supposed to stand before the Lord twice if, during this time, it is assumed that the Lord is present among his people and that whenever one approaches the tabernacle that one approaches Yahweh himself? I see no reason to assume that presumption is to be preferred over a simple reading of the text as it is without some good reason to do so. Now, to the historical context. Commentators have not only vigorously debated the literary context and structure of the passage, but also the historical context in which the composition of the passage is to be understood. Here, Bud argues for a probable late date of composition of this particular part of the text, particularly a post-exilic context. For Bud, this is viewed through the lens of the assumption that the law served as a means for the priest to regain, or gain, depending on one's view of when the priestly caste had its genesis, some kind of bureaucratic standing in the community after the return from the exile. 
He argues that prior to the monarchy, the priests would have been the ones primarily responsible with governing and ruling over civil matters and matters of fortune, such as employing the Urim and the Thummim, or lot casting in Joshua 7, 16 to 18 and 1 Samuel 14, 38 to 42. However, after the rise of the monarchy, apparently hard cases would no longer be heard by the priests, but by the king. And we see this in 2 Samuel 15, 1-6, and 1 Kings 3, 16-22. What this means for post-exile Israel is that there was no bureaucracy set up in order to hear and weigh the evidence for these hard cases, and so, says Bud, it is possible that a return to a more traditional means of determining matters, not by evidence and law, but by fortune and chance, was to be preferred. These kinds of ordeals may have been used in a much broader setting, not in the temple, which no longer stood, or the tabernacle, but in districts by whatever local priest was present. This opened up Israel to instability and corruption, and so the author of Numbers may have wanted to limit the application of the ordeal to a particular kind of case, suspected adultery that did not meet the evidentiary standards for a capital offense, and to bring it back under the supervision of the Levites to consolidate their power in Jerusalem. For Bud, this best explains the over-specificity in the casuistic formulas of verses 12 through 14 and the introduction of the grain offering into the ritual to ensure that it could only occur in Jerusalem by a Levitical priest. Harrison and others, however, tend to see a much more primitive historical setting to this law. Even critical scholars such as Note view comments about the tabernacle rather than the temple to be evidence that this comes from a not from a post-exilic period, but rather from a period before the exile. It is also important to note here that these trials by ordeal were not unusual in the ancient Near East and need not be seen as a later development. We'll now turn our attention briefly to the continuities and discontinuities between the trial by ordeal found in Numbers 5 with others found in the literature of the surrounding nations. The Code of Hammurabi in the 18th century uh, BCE contains two laws that are relevant for our discussion here. They are CH 131, if a senior's wife was accused by her husband but she was not caught while lying with another man, she shall make affirmation by God and return to her house. And CH 132, if the finger was pointed at the wife of the senior because of another man, but she has been not been caught while lying with another man, she shall throw herself into the river for the sake of the husband. In CH 132, the woman is accused by someone else in her community of being unfaithful to her husband and is to throw herself in the sacred Euphrates River, and the assumption is that if she is guilty, she will drown. But if she is innocent, she will be kept safe and her husband must hold her guiltless. This is unlike the biblical text in many ways, as we will see. So it, it is CH 131 that is much more analogous to what we find in Numbers. In this case, it is the woman's own husband who suspects his wife of infidelity and brings charges against her. Her response is to go to the temple and present herself before God to swear a solemn oath and then return home. The text is silent on whether or not the woman could or could not fail to give the oath or what consequences would be for an oath spoken in deceit. Another text is the Mari text from the northwestern Mesopotamia. 
In this inscription, it is actually the gods themselves who are made to drink water mixed with the dirt taken from one of the city gates. The text shows that this is that this bound the gods in an oath to protect the city. Walton mentions this in his commentaries. While similarities may be noted between our text and those of the surrounding nations, such as the use of water, presenting oneself before a deity, and swearing of an oath, the discontinuities are insurmountably vast in their scope. Firstly, the warp and woof of a typical ancient trial by ordeal was the presumption of guilt and the need to prove one's innocence before the deities and the people. We can see this by the fact that most ordeals were designed to be potentially fatal, such as throwing oneself into the rushing river, being lit on fire, or swallowing an otherwise deadly poison. The idea was that the person was guilty unless the deity intervened and delivered the person from the grips of death, thus vindicating them as innocent. <coughs> Excuse me. Some have argued that the differences were for practical reasons. An example of this would be R. Devaugh, who suspects that the moderation of the practice in Israel from fatal to non-lethal was due in large part to geography, that is, that there was no river dangerous enough in Palestine to make the trials really all that dangerous. This does not explain, however, why they did not opt for fire or poison. In any event, there is a stark contrast between the ordeals we find in Mesopotamia, for example, with those of Israel. The woman accused of adultery is not submitted to a test that puts her life in danger just by the act of partaking in the ordeal. That is, the elements are not in and of themselves potentially fatal to the defendant. Thompson, in fact, notes that this trial in Israel was much more likely to result in an innocent verdict, whereas the pagan rituals would be much more likely to result in a death or a guilty verdict. Here, the procedure and the elements themselves do not invoke magic, but rather set up the conditions whereby it will be apparent to the congregation what Yahweh already knows, whether or not the woman is innocent or guilty. A further disparity between Israelite law and those surrounding them can be drawn from this. It is precisely that this law does not presume the woman guilty, that it can be seen not as merely a chauvinistic or brutal practice of a male-dominated society. Here, the question is often asked why a woman cannot bring her husband up on the same charge. One possible answer is that there is nothing that says she cannot. While that may be the subtext of the law, such casuistic laws are meant to be exemplary and not necessarily exhaustive of all possible applications. Another aspect of this is that a male-dominated society, such laws would essentially function as a guardian of women who would have otherwise been crushed by forceful husbands who were prone to jealous rage. Although modern sexual ethics have become exceptionally and progressively more permissive than they have been in the past, and views about marital infidelity often fall in the range of a mere personal matter, fidelity to marriage was one of the utmost virtues in the ancient world and to protect it was of paramount importance as a foundation of community life. A husband was not only seen as the protector of his own virtue, but the virtue of the, of the entire family. This is why when a woman was suspected of committing a, adultery as an action, she was demanded, uh, action was demanded by the community itself. Even in Babylon, it appears to have been the expectation that a neighbor who suspected his neighbor's wife of infidelity must bring suit against her. 
Yet imagine that no such law was in place and a husband was wantonly jealous or even sought permissible ways to divorce his wife. Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 19 tells us that a husband who had lost interest in his wife was not permitted to falsely accuse his wife of not being a virgin prior to marriage. This was supposed to be found out by the habit of the parents of the bride to keep the bridal sheets as evidence of her virginity. We also know that a wife could not be found guilty of adultery without either the evidence of multiple witnesses or by being caught in the act. This means that a husband was quite literally married for life, either the rest of his or hers. This law then, coupled with those mentioned in Deuteronomy, was set in place to protect women from being used and abused, only to be cast to one side by a husband who no longer felt the desire to serve and protect her. A husband who wanted out could not simply accuse her of infidelity, either without the required evidence or without being willing to stand before God and the congregation and put his jealousy to the test as much as his wife. In the eyes of the Israelites, this would not be unfair to the wife because the innocent woman would have nothing to fear from this ordeal, save the expected normal trepidation of coming before a holy God. Yet in this case, though she was to come humbly before God with offering in hand, she could be assured that the God who knew all would vindicate her from all false accusations. This was not a kangaroo court, but a hearing presided over by an omniscient God. The only women who were to fear the ordeal were the ones who had committed adultery and were about to fall under the curse of the living God. So this ordeal was not so much a means of suppressing women, but protecting the innocent ones while banning the unclean ones from among the assembly. A note should also be made here that in Israel, the expectation was not that the materials used in the ceremony were magically imbued with the power to judge. It is clear from the act of standing before Yahweh, of making an offering to him, and from the words of the curse declared by the priests, that it was Yahweh who would bring about the outcome. The elements, quote, had no ex opera operato efficacy associated with them, end quote, says Harrison. Wenham adds to this, by comparison to prayer, that, quote, whether the, the potion was effective in making a guilty woman sterile, no born depends on magic than does intercessory prayer. Prayer and symbolic rituals both depend ultimately on the will of God for their efficacy, end quote. We'll now turn our attention to an exposition of the law and what was expected for those who were to partake in the ordeal. The context of the law is as sharply contested as the debates over the composition of the text itself. To make matters worse, the law does not lend itself well to easy or simple summary. What follows is an interaction with several of the contentious points of the law rather than a detailed treatment of the law as a whole. It will do, however, to borrow from Wynnum his outline of the law and the ceremony that, prescri that it prescribes. Now, if you haven't actually read the passage from Numbers 5 at this point, pause the episode and go read it before I go through this breakdown. You should have read it before we started, but this is a really a good time to pause and go read. Welcome back. Wynnum breaks down the law as follows. Number one. The suspicious husband brings his wife and an appropriate offering to the priests. Verse 15. Number two, the priests take the woman into the court of the tabernacle before the Lord. Verse 16. 
Number three, the priest takes an earthenware vessel, puts water in it, and mixed it with the dust from the tabernacle floor. Verse 17. Number four, the priest goes back to the woman, unbinds her hair, and puts the grain offering in her hands. Verse 18. Number five, holding the water in his hands, the priest recites the curse to the woman, and she assents to it. Verses 19 to 22. Number six, the priest writes down the curses and then washes them into the holy water. Verse 23. Number seven, the priest takes the grain offering from the woman and burns part of it on the altar. Verses 25 to 26. Number eight, the woman drinks the water. Verse 26b. Number nine, the water takes effect on the woman if she is guilty. Verses 27 to 28. I will here confine our examination of the law to four major aspects. A, the significance of the grain offering. B, the significance of the water. C, the significance of the loosing of the woman's hair. And D, the significance of the oath and its curse. First is the question regarding the grain offering. We're told that when the man brings his wife to the priest, that he must also, quote, bring as an offering for her one-tenth an ephah of barley meal. He shall not pour oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of memorial, a reminder of iniquity, end quote, verse 15. Though it is called a grain offering and has some elements described by the grain offerings in Leviticus 2, it is to be made of barley meal rather than fine flour. This was much more in accordance with the poor man's offering in Leviticus 5, 11 to 13, presented when one had become unclean. This shows that the woman, even if she was innocent, was to be considered unclean, which is in line with viewing this trial as part of the cleanliness laws that preceded it in verses 1 through 10. Oil and frankincense were common symbols of the Spirit of God and of joy and were not to be included since this was a somber occasion with very little joy to be felt. Note points this out in his commentary on page 50. Harrison argues this offering is reminiscent of a sin offering, but should not be considered as a presumption of guilt, because the term used is korban, which signifies an offering that could be offered as a sacrifice or offered in sanctuary worship. There is also some discussion as to whether or not this offering is actually on behalf of the wife, or if it really it is really on behalf of the husband who has been shamed. The fact that the woman is not presumed to be guilty and that the husband is to prepare and provide the sacrifice while the wife is to offer it to the priest may indicate that the offering is more to rectify the uncleanliness of the situation and covers both rather than act as some kind of atonement for either the husband or the wife. The offering was waived and then burned on the altar before the woman. Here, Harrison thinks that we see that the worshiper was making an offering of good faith, demonstrating that they did not come empty-handed to God and are willing to submit themselves to his divine laws and judgments. Harrison makes this argument on page 115. Next, we come to the question regarding the significance of the water that the woman is given to drink. While some older commentators suspected that the water would come from the spring near the tabernacle, most have concluded that the water would come from the bronze laver mentioned in Exodus 38.8. However, Calvin gives an interesting alternative possibility to this. 
While he does not defend it, Calvin asks us to consider whether or not it is more likely that the water would come from the water which was sprinkled with the ashes of the red heifer, whereby purifications were made in Numbers 19.1 and following. This is not only an interesting possibility, considered that the waters of Numbers 19 is what is used to purify the congregation of ceremonially uncleanliness, such as the woman was now suffering, but would also add another layer of gravity to the situation. If the water she drank was the means by which uncleanliness was to be purified, and yet she perjured herself against even that, then, as Calvin notes, no further means of expiation remained. End quote. In any case, this water is sprinkled with dust from the floor of the tabernacle, surely considered holy and clean by the priests, and the ink used to write the words of the cursed would be added before consumma uh, consummation. Consumption, I'm sorry. This mixture is called the, quote, the water of bitterness that brings a curse, end quote, in verse 18. This is probably not because a pinch of dust and ink would make the water unbearable or bitter, but rather, as Note argues, is to be understood figuratively, as is often the case with for the Hebrew root merer. And he notes this and note notes this in his commentary on page fifty one. We see other examples of this use in 1 Samuel 15.32, referring to the bitterness of death, and here it is likely the bitterness of death that will come if the woman is guilty. As Wenham points out in his commentary on page 80, there may be an allusion to several episodes in the history of Israel up to this point as well. This may harken back to the curse of the serpent for deceiving the man, which is what, what the wife is accused of in Numbers 5. And it may also reflect the punishment of the Israelites when they were made to drink the ashes of the golden calf in Exodus 32.20. We may even see this passage behind the prophetic references to Yahweh forcing unfaithful Israel to drink the, quote, cup of his judgment in Isaiah 51.17, 51.22, and Ezekiel 23.30-34. This view may be reinforced by later passages where prophets were made to eat scrolls with the inks of messages on them and which in turn would turn uh, bitter and which reveal the bitter nature of the curses and judgments that were allowed uh, about to follow, such as Ezekiel 3.3 and Revelation 10.9. Finally, the earthenware bowl containing the water is placed in the woman's hand, and likely the offering before it, the woman now literally holds her life in her hands, and should, be, and should she proceed, she will either be faithful before God and be spared or perjure herself directly in God's presence and fall under his divine condemnation and judgment. A third aspect of this ceremony that is heavily debated is the significance of loosening the woman's hair before she consumes the water of bitterness. Here, there seems to be no consensus or even anything approaching it among the commentators. Calvin suggests that the loosing of her hair is not meant as a sign of shame, since to view it in that regard would be to condemn her as guilty before her case was heard. Rather, Calvin viewed it as a means to communicate the severity of the charges, where she is brought before a holy God without covering, so that she is laid bare before Yahweh, and what follows is either the mode of absolution or condemnation. 
Other commentators have suggested that this was a sign of humility or of shame, such as Lang, who argued that she is not yet condemned as a sinner, but rather as, quote, provisionally shorn of her dignity, forsaken of her husband and all the world, whom one, moreover, may look in the eyes, and now the offering of rebuke is laid in her hands, end quote. However, both Wynnum and Harrison argue that this was yet another reminder that the ceremony was dealing with uncleanliness in the camp. Like the lepers in the preceding verses who were required to have loosened hair at all times as a sign of their condition, Leviticus 13.45, again, the woman was also to bear the sign that she was unclean before God, even if she was morally innocent. In contrast to her unkept look, the priest was required by law to refrain from becoming unclean and thus were not to untidy their hair even when they were in mourning, Leviticus 10.6 and Leviticus 21.10-11. It seems to me that some combination of Calvin's view on the one hand and Harrison and Wynnum's view on the other is to be preferred. Finally, we arrive at the question of the curse which the woman was to affirm with a twice-stated Amen. Here, Walton takes what appears to be a peculiar stance. Walton argues that because the word used to describe the nature of the crime that the husband is charging her with in verse 12 usually refers to a breach of faith or sacrilege, such as Leviticus 5, 14 to 16, that the husband has already made his wife swear an oath and is now not charging her with adultery, but rather with swearing falsely. Walton argues this on his background's commentary on page 145. This does have the benefit of explaining why the woman who does not pass the test is not condemned to civil capital judgment, but rather succumbs only to the judgment of God meted out against her after drinking from the cup. In any case, she is presumably required to swear an oath before God that she is innocent. The text does not record the words of the oath she takes, and the grammar, following Harrison, could even mean something like the priest put her under oath. But what it does tell us is that in response to her oath, the priest declares the blessings and curses, and that she is to consent with a double amen. She has now been truthful to both her husband and God, or has lied and attempted to deceive both. Here again, there is little agreement on what the expected outcome of the curse was to be beyond that it is described as a swelling of the abdomen and a, quote, falling away, end quote, or deterioration of the thighs. While the Mishnah engaged with traditions that taught that the woman, if she were guilty, would die on the spot, or if innocent, would become ultra-fertile and bear sons, other commentators like Josephus thought that this referred to a kind of dropsy of the kidneys or the ovaries. Other medical explanations seem to litter the exegetical landscape. For our purposes here, what is of note is that if the woman was guilty, the tools of her guilt, so to speak, her belly and her thighs, likely euphemisms for her reproductive parts, would be the very things affected. As Theodore Ray commented, the punishment shall come from the same source as the sin, end quote. 
While it's hard to say that miscarriage is in mind, for it's not clear that the woman will always be pregnant, though that may be what caused the husband's suspicion in the first place, certainly childlessness is in view, whether by miscarriage or, and or infertility. This would likewise be a lasting reminder that sin brings death and lifelessness, and it is by fidelity to God that there is life. Barrenness should not be viewed as a softer punishment than the capital offense of being caught in adultery, however. This woman would, by the direct judgment of God, be unable to bear children, and as a result, render her not only a curse and an example among her people, but also deprive her of the very thing that would have made her a real, quote-unquote, woman in that culture. That, in many ways, would be a fate worse than death. Conversely, if the woman was found to be innocent, she would be publicly vindicated before not just her husband, but her community. Not one could whisper, no one could whisper or gossip. It would be known to all that she had been faithful to her God and to her husband. Okay, what about application to the church today? The Christian church today should take away from this the law, take away from this law the severity with which God views adultery. Not only does God care about it so much that it's a capital offense for Israel to commit, but he sets up this procedure that even the appearance of infidelity should be rooted out from among the people, a principle that Paul reiterates in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. While this law was set up so as not to be a burden of guilt on an innocent woman, it was meant to be a constant reminder to the people that no sins are private before an omniscient God. As Christians, we should be quick to repent before God who sees what we do in secret and come before him with our offering of repentance. We do not loose our hair to lay ourselves bare while awaiting a verdict because we know that we are guilty already. We come to God in full knowledge that we have been unfaithful and throw ourselves upon the great mercy and gracious redeeming promises of our God. We are to be reminded that sin will not always be found out by our community, but will always have consequences. David and Bathsheba learned their lesson when their sins were punished, not by their deaths, but by the death of their infant child. Just as the judgment of trial by ordeal in Numbers 5 will result in a miscarriage or infertility, so sin will always have its fill of death, which is why Paul was correct when he says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. It just happens to be the case that the sin addressed by the, the law is the sin of adultery. Proverbs warns us of the adulteress that her, quote, her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, end quote, and that, quote, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol, end quote, Proverbs 5, 4, and 5. And so we're warned by the whole council of scripture that the import of this law is good and true, that sexual purity is the utmost import to the follower of Jesus Christ, because in it we are not only being unfaithful to our spouse, but also to our God. He shows us here that he will seek out and vindicate the faithful wife, but will issue a curse on the one who has broken covenant with him. We are also told by Paul that marriage is not just a human institution, but it is a means by which God illustrates the gospel to us. 
It shows us our relationship to God and that husbands are to sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit in humility to their husbands. That is the picture of marriage Paul has for us. Peter takes this further in 1 Peter 3, 7 and warns husbands that if they do not treat their wives well, that God will go so far as to stop answering their prayers. This tells us just how seriously God views marriage and just how far off our modern views of marriage often are, even in the church. We're to remember this law in our marriages. We are to be faithful to our spouses as Jesus has been faithful to us and to love one another with that kind of sacrificial love. Sadly, we do not. In fact, we cannot. Jesus warns us in Matthew 5:28 that, quote, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, end quote. And James tells us that if we break one part of the law, then we are guilty of breaking the whole law, end quote. James 2, 10 to 13. Which of us could stand before the altar, having been instructed of this by Christ, and still swear the oath of our perfect fidelity to our spouse? Well, there is hope. Christ is fulfillment. There's hope for us. The Christological signifiers in this text are hard to miss after deep reflection and permeate nearly every aspect of the ceremony. We see in Jesus the falsely accused spouse, the one who brought to trial without who was brought to trial without evidence or reason by a husband who desires to do away with him at all cost. We see Jesus in the offering of the barley, the first fruits of the harvest, just as Paul describes Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15:23. We see Jesus in the water that brings life to those God declares innocent in John 7:38. In addition to this, we should understand the importance of seeing this law as a law of uncleanliness. We're told in the surrounding context that lepers, the hemorrhaging woman, and the dead bodies are all unclean, and that if any Israelite was to touch them, they too would be unclean and need cleansing. And yet when we look to Jesus, we see him touching a leper, a hemorrhaging woman, and a dead little girl, and he is not made unclean, but they are made clean. We read in this verse about a cup that is full of bitter water that would bring a curse to us being taken up by Jesus himself, and rather than a clean Jesus being defiled, we who are defiled are made clean. However, it is in this cup that we most clearly see the faithfulness of Christ to us when we consider the fact that Israel was to be the bride of God. Yahweh is constantly castigating Israel for being like an adulterous bride, a wife of harlotry. Here, we do not only see God's concern for the sanctity of our marriages with each other, but of our marriage with him. God is the jealous husband who is jealous for a good reason, not mere unfounded suspicion. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, especially that of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, Israel is shown that she cannot abide this trial by ordeal. She had been unfaithful and broken her vows before God. We are told that Israel will be forced to drink the cup of his judgment in Isaiah 51, 17, and 22, and Ezekiel 23, 30-34. Macintosh wrote, quote, The guilty one had to drink death and found it to be judgment. The faithful one drank death and found it victory. End quote. 
Thankfully for us, the faithful one drank death for us so that the guilty ones might find victory in him. In the course of this episode, we've seen some of the dialogues that commentators have had with regard to this law about the trial by ordeal of the woman suspected of adultery. In it, we have explored the placement of the text within the book of Numbers and the underlying ideas about the formation of the text itself into its present form. We have seen its historical setting among other ancient texts and have found it far superior in its judiciousness and charity. Not only that, but we have shown how the law is useful and profitable to the modern Christian church that is languishing under a slack sexual ethic of extreme permissiveness and how it points us toward our need for Christ as our Savior and faithful groom. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, feel free to visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, email me at freedthinkerpodcast.gmail.com, or join in the discussion at the Freed Thinker group page on Facebook. We'll see you again here very soon. Good night, and God bless.